Uh, If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8, we're continuing our series on the rise of the Christian church. And if you have spent uh, any time reading the scriptures at all, by now you have realized that God's ways are very different than our own ways. Can I get an amen to that? God's ways are different than our ways. They really are. The manner that God sets out to accomplish his plans more often than not look very different from the way that you and I would accomplish it. Uh, When young Joseph was rejected by his brothers, initially thrown into a pit, eventually sold into slavery, then put into a dungeon, all of these things were God's ways of carefully placing him in a position of prominence in Egypt that he might rescue his own family and God's people from the famine that was coming. When Moses was abandoned as a baby by his family, really to protect him from infanticide, and they placed him in the basket and pushed him down the river, this was God's way of drifting him right into the palace of Pharaoh, to a place of training and education and stature, so that he could be a rescuer for the people of God. And when God sent his ultimate rescuer, Jesus, to rescue the world from sin, amazingly, he didn't send someone with immediate stature to obviously establish his righteous and glorious kingdom. He sent the divine son as a baby, born of a virgin, in the small out-of-the-way town of Bethlehem, to be raised in the sticks of Nazareth, only to be rejected by the religious establishment, crucified, and then buried, and yet it was by his death and his resurrection that sins were atoned for. And when God wants to get the word out to the entire world of the gospel of grace, the means by which men and women are saved from their sins and reconciled to a holy God, amazingly, again, he entrusts very ordinary people, initially 12 apostles, and then just everyday folks like you and me. He doesn't deliver it in the information age, using YouTube and social media and podcasts and the internet, but he entrusts it to the verbal proclamation of very ordinary people in the first century. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so the principle that we're going to take out of our passage uh, this morning is this, that the Lord advances the gospel in the manner that he sees fit. More often than not, it's, it's just not the way that you and I would do it. We probably would not choose the youngest or the rejected or the lowly or the ordinary. If we were trying to accomplish something great, and spread this message far and wide, this message that is to save the world, we would probably choose the powerful, the famous, the wealthy, the influential, those who have stature and and skill. But as we see time and time again through the scripture, the Lord advances the gospel in the manner that he sees fit. And that principle is on display for us here in chapter 8 of Acts. Uh, we see the gospel basically advancing from Jerusalem into the surrounding territories. But again, it's not by popularity. 
It's not by success. It's not by invitation. It's not like the regions around them are clamoring for it. But in fact, it's by persecution. Persecution becomes the catalyst for gospel expansion at this time. And so our first point this morning is this. It's Stephen's martyrdom. We looked at this last week. Stephen's martyrdom marked the beginning of a great persecution for the church in Jerusalem. So chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. For starters, I want to just acknowledge how awful this persecution is. Uh, We use that word too lightly today, to be frank. They are going house to house in a systematic purging of Christianity from Jerusalem. That's the attempt. Uh, In our last passage, as we looked at sort of the martyrdom uh, of Stephen, um, it seemed like this Saul fellow was just kind of a bystander, you know, an accomplice. Maybe you could convict him of being an accomplice because he was there. But he seemed to be sort of a passive actor there. Uh, Whereas here, he is the front aggressor, an active aggressor. A man whose Jewish piety, his passionate defense of historic Judaism, is driving him to purge what he presumes to be heretics of the faith out of the region. I think his mission is to try to protect the faith as he understands it. But that drives him with zeal to try to protect Judaism as he knows it. Going from house to house. To house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Well, you can imagine in Jerusalem, uh, husbands and wives look to each other and say, hmm, I think it's time we should move, honey. Maybe we should look for a little different place to live, somewhere out of this region. Um, About 15 years ago, um, Amy and I lived across town uh, from where we do now. We lived over in Hamilton Acres, right by Nordale School. That was our first house that we uh, bought here in Fairbanks, and we lived there about four and a half years, and um, we were in the middle of uh, transitioning from the associate pastor position here to the lead pastor role while we were living there, and so we started to think, you know, maybe this is a good time to think about selling our house. On the one hand, the market had done well, and we thought, well, we'd probably make some money on it. Also, if we're going to be here long term, probably not going to be in this house, uh, and if we don't get the uh, position of the lead pastor role, we're probably going to leave town. You know, uh, that would be hard to stay. And, uh, and then a, a, few, a series of other things started happening. One night, we were sitting there watching TV, and we had a late-night visitor. Someone just walked in off the street into our Arctic entry and sat there and turned out to be sort of the local drunk that just needed to warm up and just stepped into our house. And so we thought, okay, that's interesting. And then a while later, we had another individual who were laying in bed in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, the garage door opens. I look outside, and there's a hooded figure in our car, and they had accidentally bumped the garage door opener and opened it, and then I watched them proceed around the house and look in all our windows and try to break in. Called the police on that one, too. Turned out to be a mentally unbalanced person that was just going for some night adventures. And then we had a neighborhood dog that was menacing and would come out and threaten us and sometimes pin us down in our car, had bitten a bunch of people up and down the street, even over at the school. 
And then we had a domestic uh, disturbance that had kind of walked down the street and erupted in our front yard. And we looked at one another and thought, you know, it's time to move. <laughs> We're going to move. So we did. But more than, you know, an irritating neighborhood dog or neighborhood mischief or the cold and dark of Alaska, uh, this is outright persecution that is driving um, the church out of Jerusalem. That's our second point. Persecution scattered the church into new territories. And to be honest with you, there were two details that, as I was reading the passage and studying it this week, two things stood out to me that I hadn't noticed before. You ever do that when you're reading the scripture? You're like, what version am I reading? How, how long has this been in here? Who's, whose Bible is this, right? Well, two things stood out to me this week. The first was this. The extents of the exodus of Christians from Jerusalem. The Bible says all of them, except the apostles, left. I'll be honest with you, I thought it was probably most or a good portion, and, but it says all of them left. So that was kind of the first thing that stood out to me. This is probably like 10,000 people. You imagine if 10,000 people upped and left Fairbanks. We'd feel that, you know? So this was kind of a big deal. And then uh, the second thing that sort of surprised me that I didn't remember seeing is it also says that the apostles stayed behind. And I, I don't know why. I kind of wonder, but it doesn't, it doesn't tell us. But what I want to say, what I want to acknowledge is this. I don't think it's a knock against either one of them. I don't think we're to think lowly of, of the uh, Christians that are leaving or the apostles that are staying. And here's why. First of all, for the general Christ followers to leave... One of the things that it demonstrated is their true departure from the historic Judaism that they had come up in and their true faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that it demonstrated. They were trusting Christ as the one who had performed the law for them. And they were trusting really in his sacrifice, his ultimate sacrifice for them because they are leaving Jerusalem and sort of temple worship behind. It shows the level of conviction and faith that they have in Jesus. Also, we see that it's the ordinary disciple that really carries the gospel into the surrounding territories. They are fleeing for their lives, but they are carrying with them the gospel and boldly proclaiming it. So if you were ever under the impression that, man, it was the apostles, they're the ones who spread the word. It's because of their power and skill and prominence and position. That's how the gospel really spread. They certainly were active and effective in sharing the gospel. But it tells us here that the everyday ordinary Christian was the one continuing to proclaim the gospel wherever they went, right? Verse four, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, wherever they went. And then again, the second part here, the apostles stayed behind. I don't, I don't know why. Um, but I don't think that's a mark of cowardice. In fact, staying put in the place where you're actively being persecuted, where someone like Stephen has just been martyred, also took great courage. So to be willing to live sort of the traditions that you had come up in and trusting in Christ, such that you would even go in the surrounding territories of Judea and Samaria, that took courage. To stay in Jerusalem and, and deal with the head-on persecution of Saul and the others also took courage. But even in the midst of this, the gospel spreads. Even in the midst of persecution, the gospel is spread. 
so this is our third point. The scattered church continued to proclaim the gospel. So we kind of get the story of the gospel's expansions biographically through Acts. And we just saw Stephen's life and ministry had come to an end, and now it sort of kind of continues on through the life and ministry of Philip. Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So once again, now we see someone, we see Philip, able to perform signs and wonders, kind of in the same way that we saw uh, Stephen proclaim them. And so I think this should bring up a question for us, maybe it does for you, and that is this. Should this activity of signs and wonders, should that be normative in the Christian experience? Should you and I expect to perform these kinds of miraculous things or see them performed on a regular basis? This chapter in Acts, chapter 8, is kind of a watershed chapter for how different churches and denominations view this. So on, on sort of the, the viewpoint that would agree to this that says, yeah, that's the case, we'll find, first of all, typically charismatic churches and that's often more descriptive of kind of worship style. You're often going to see standing, hands raised. Maybe you would see speaking in tongues. You're going to see a more expressive worship style. And then kind of moving on the continuum, uh, we'll find assemblies of God. You know, you can kind of expect to see uh, speaking in tongues and, and these kinds of things happening there. And then when you go to a Pentecostal church, not only would you expect to see these same things there, they're going to expect to see those things of you to legitimize your faith. In other words, the Pentecostal church believes that to be a Christian, one has to receive the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, your salvation is going to be suspect or questioned outright. And then you have, on the far end of the continuum, what we call a NAR church or New Apostolic Reformation. I'm not even going to get into that this morning, but that's how that continuum kind of goes. Okay? So, Churches and denominations today divide over this. This is kind of the watershed passage. Should we experience signs and wonders and miracles as normative in the Christian life? And here is my very detailed, precise, nuanced, careful answer. Ready? No. No. Should we experience this ability to heal someone, perform miracles, raise the dead, as some even in the NAR church think? No. And here's why I would say that. First of all, in the book of Acts, signs and wonders are primarily done by the apostles. And when I say apostles, I mean the 12 plus 1, 12 plus Paul. Those who were called by Jesus, witnesses of his life and his, uh, his resurrection, and, and given the ambassadorship of carrying his message, these are the ones that typically uh, perform miracles and signs like this. Now, there are exceptions uh, as we see here, we have, we've already seen Stephen, right? He performed signs and wonders, and I, I don't mean a pun here, but that was short-lived, right? Because it didn't happen very long for Stephen. And here we see Philip do it, and only one other individual in the book of Acts who performs these kinds of signs and wonders, and it's Barnabas later on. So that's three 
in addition to the 12. So the point that I would make is this. We would have to say that this experience isn't even normative in the book of Acts for Christians. The average disciple of Jesus, we're not, it's not indicated to us that they did perform signs and wonders. It was exceptional. And that's why it's even mentioned. And not only that, that's why it drew the kind of attention that it did by others. Particularly in our case, there's a man named Simon uh, for whom this becomes a very interesting thing. Also, I would say, for those who say that this should be a normative experience, signs and wonders and miracles, I would say I think this passage actually says too much. Because as we go on, we find that there is this figure, Simon, who wants this ability and pursues it and seeks it, and he is, in fact, rebuked by Peter for the way in which he goes about it. And that has a lot to do with motive, but still. Now, let me offer a caveat for this. We do not limit God. We do not limit God. God can do a miracle anytime he wants. He does them every day. And miracles certainly occurred in the history of the Old Testament. They certainly occurred during the rise of the Christian church. God does miracles today. God does them. So we don't need to be speculative about the existence of miracles. Uh, But historically, as we look at the scriptures, the revelation of God, as we see miracles and signs being done, they are done to authenticate one of two things. Either an ambassador or a messenger of God or sort of the divine work that God is doing. And that's kind of what we find. We saw this in the Old Testament. We see Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. That was a sign that helped move him to a position of prominence. Moses parted the Red Sea. Jesus performing miracles and healing people and doing these kinds of signs authenticated his messiahship. The apostles' ability to heal from illness and perform miracles authenticated them as apostles. And so that's the nature. That's why they're called signs. Miracles were typically done to authenticate someone as an ambassador of God or to authenticate God's divine activity. And particularly in the book of Acts, I think what happens is often we see signs and wonders occur when the gospel is moving into new territories or especially into new people groups. And that's what's on display here as the gospel moves from Judaism and Jerusalem to this new territory of Samaria. And so signs and wonders, I think, are done here to authenticate this movement. Look with me in verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a very long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the next point we see is this. We see the gospel is received by these in Samaria. Oops, I'm ahead of myself here, aren't I? Sorry. Received. I didn't show you the map. That's what I didn't do. Did I? I didn't, I didn't know that I showed you the map. Let's look at this. Sorry. Uh, in the orange region here, you can see uh, this is sort of the region of uh, Judea. And Jerusalem is kind of in the upper two-thirds, a little to the right of that. And then you have to the very north, the yellow region, which is Galilee. And this is where a lot of Jesus' early ministry was done, right? And where Nazareth is located. And then south, in between the two, you have Samaria. And this was a region where a particular group of people that were hostile, really, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and I'll get into that in a moment. But to travel from one to the other, you had to go through this particular territory. In fact, you know the expression in the scriptures, shake the dust off of your feet, right? It comes from having the custom of having, when you traveled through Samaria, Jews hated doing that, and they would sort of knock the dust off their feet as though I had to travel through that ugly region. That's actually where that particular phrase comes from. Um, so anyways, this, we see the gospel moving into this territory. And it seems to me um, that these who had received um, the message and were baptized, these seem to be very genuine conversions to me. I think both the people's conversion, and I also think Simon the sorcerer's conversion as well. Now, I'll tell you that with regard to Simon, whether or not that was a genuine conversion, uh, scholars and, and theologians are kind of split 50-50 on that. I consulted 10 different commentaries this week on it. They're split right down the middle. Half of them say, this is not a legitimate conversion. Half of them say it is. And I'm, in, I'm of the opinion, I think that it is. And so I'm going to teach from that perspective. I could be wrong, okay? I could be wrong. But that's what I, I see here. But we see that both, and I'm just taking the text at face value. It says that they believed and they were baptized. And then uh, Philip, or excuse me, Simon continues to follow Philip around. And these seem to me to be evidence of a true conversion. Baptism here, and hopefully you know this, we're a Baptist church. Baptism, the, word, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse, to dip into water. And what it is, is a dramatization of the gospel. It is not something that saves a person. There is nothing salvific that happens there. It is a symbol of what God has already done. A person is publicly identifying with Christ, being lowered into the water, identifying with him in his death, the water symbolizing a cleansing of sin, and coming up out of the water, a raising to, life, to new life. And, and as we will often say, it is an outward picture of an inward reality. What has already taken place is being put on display publicly. And I want you to think how difficult that would be to do in the first century world when you just had to leave Jerusalem because they were going house to house throwing you in jail. Or when Stephen was martyred for his faith. And yet that's what these believers do. They stand up and are baptized and Simon being one of them. But what we find here is that a curious thing happens, or rather doesn't happen. There's no initial reception of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I have a question about this. How do they know that? 
I, I don't have an answer, so moving on, I just wonder about that. How do they know? But then the next question I think this brings up is, does this mean that believers today should expect this pattern? That we would make a profession of faith, but then there would be a delay, and then there would be some kind of subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit? Is that what we should expect? The Pentecostal church will say yes. They'll say that what happened here is to be normative, and you are not truly saved until you experience this subsequent uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I challenge that. Uh, I do not think this is normative. In fact, I think just the opposite is true. The text suggests that this is unusual, which is why it's mentioned. Listen to it. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. The, The fact that it mentions that, I think, indicates that it is an unusual thing, that this is a strange occurrence. So, What's the reason for this occurrence? Why would this happen? Why would there be this this delay here? And I think the real issue is that the gospel has now moved not just into a new region, but particularly into a new people group. And it required a kind of authentication, a kind of legitimizing and corroborating the apostles to say, yes, this is legitimate, particularly as we think about the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, this needed some sort of level of verification. Uh, Let me just give you a quick background on sort of the hostility here between these two groups. This is a thousand-year-old feud between Jews and Gentiles. It begins with the breakup of the monarch in 1000 BC, where basically you have 10 tribes split off and become the northern region, and two others which become the southern region, Jerusalem and, and, and Judaism there. And then we find in this northern region, it sort of gets worse here. They're taken captive. Now, they make their own capital, Samaria, but then they're taken captive by uh, Assyria in 722. And as most of them leave, foreigners move in behind them, and so you have this mixing of marriage of ethnicity and of faith. And so that's what sort of happens in the Samaria region. And then later on, you have, uh, you have Judah basically taken captive in Babylon, right? And when they're released 70 years later, they come back, and there's such a hostility between the southern region of Judah and the northern region of Samaria that when they're coming out of Babylon and returning home to Jerusalem, they refuse the help of the Samaritans to help them rebuild. That's the hostility that's there. And it gets even sort of worse in the first century or fourth century when the Samarians, Samaritans end up building an alternate temple. Not only that, but then they refuse, they repudiate the Old Testament except the Pentateuch. So this thousand-year-old feud is harsh. This separation is big. And that's why you have Jesus in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. She says, why are you talking to me? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So now we have the gospel leaving Jerusalem and going to, of all places, Samaria. So this is, I mean, just to kind of put it in a little bit of perspective, this is like North Korea, South Korea, Russia, Ukraine. Except we're not talking about a century-old conflict 
We're talking about a thousand-year-old conflict. For the gospel to go into that territory, it needed a certain kind of hands-on corroboration, and that is what the apostles do by laying on hands, sort of authenticates that, yes, the Spirit has come to these people as well. So the question is, what does that mean for you and me? Should we expect this same kind of two-tiered event, a conversion and a delay and a subsequent uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit? And again, I say the answer is no. Here's what happens at the moment of our conversion, and I hope this blesses you. The moment that we repent of our sins and trust in Christ as our Savior, we're regenerated. We go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive in Christ. We're baptized into the Holy Spirit immediately, sealed in the family of God. We're justified before God based on the righteousness of Christ that he obeyed for us and his righteousness is transferred to us. We're adopted as his children. We're saved from the penalty of sin and also from the power of sin. And we're saved into the family of God. And all of that happens instantly when we become believers in Jesus Christ. And when we list all of that out, to me, I look at that and I go, how good is the gospel of Jesus Christ? How powerful and effective is that in our lives when we see all that is achieved there? We don't have to wait for a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Give him more power and influence in your life. Yield more and more of territory of your heart to him in obedience, and you'll experience filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me this ability so that I can, uh, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, um, because I take his uh, conversion as legitimate, it kind of leads me this way uh, interpretively, so I'm going to stay in this path. To me, this new faith of Simon's here, he's still learning to want the right things for the right reasons. So I find myself kind of sympathetic to Simon where he says, hey, let me, let me pay for this gift. Because to be honest with you, I'd love to have this ability as well. I'd love to be able to walk up to someone who's not yet a believer in Jesus Christ and go, there you go, there's the Spirit of God. Wouldn't you want that? For your siblings, for your parents, for your neighbors, your friends who don't yet know the Lord, wouldn't you want to be able to go, boom, Holy Spirit, you're good now. That, that would be desirable. But I think what we see here, uh, based upon Peter's rebuke of Simon, it reveals that he had an ulterior motive. He wasn't just concerned in the salvation of others. He was concerned for the power and prominence that he himself might receive. He wants the personal glory. Look at verse 20. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So some would see this rebuke and go, see, he really wasn't a believer. I see this rebuke and I think what Peter is saying is you've got no place in leadership because you're still self-preoccupied. You're not concerned for the affairs of others. 
And I think that's the issue here. So upon further investigation, I think we see that the immaturity of Simon's discipleship, I think that's what's on display. And frankly, this is something we ought to expect from a young believer. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, right away, they're kind of clumsy. You know that? They don't have it right away. Sometimes they can be a little embarrassing. Some of us were a little embarrassing. And so I think what we see here is that some of the sinful tendencies that even Simon had before the faith are the same temptations that he has after the faith, the same kinds of things that continue on. He still longed for power. He still leaned on his money. He still tried to use God for personal gain. Sinful patterns die hard, and that was the case with Simon here. But to his credit, I think Simon actually receives the strong rebuke from Peter. Seems to me like he receives it. Verse 24. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, uh, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So what are the takeaways from this passage overall? The first thing I think is this. Here we see that the mission of God will not be stopped. Not by arresting apostles, not by putting them in jail, not by flogging them, not by killing them. The mission of God will not be stopped. And secondly, we see that true ambassadors of Jesus will not stop proclaiming the word of God. And sort of beautifully here, it's the everyday disciple that God uses. Thirdly, I think we see this that the devil who is behind all of these schemes of adversity and persecution and arrest and all of these things is just playing into God's hands. I don't know if you've ever tried to put out an oil fire with water before. Anyone ever tried that? It doesn't work. And that's what the devil is doing with the gospel here. He's trying to put out an oil fire with water and he only accomplishes in spreading the flame. Um, and I think something that you and I need to remember as we look around the world and we see the church under attack, or we see it seemingly in retreat, or we see people suffering for the faith, sometimes what we need to tell ourselves is, God may be doing his most creative work right now. So in your own life, maybe you're being relocated. You've been in this area for a few years now. Military's PCSing you. They're moving you on. You're going somewhere else, and you don't really want to leave. This has been a rich place spiritually for you and your family. I would tell you, Look at that and receive it simply as this. God is sending you on mission to a new place with what he's entrusted to you here. Or maybe your job has changed and you think, you know what, I liked where I was before. I had some Christians around me. It was kind of nice. It was this little haven of safety. But now I'm in this new department and there's a bunch of knuckleheads around here and I don't like what they stand for at all. Congratulations, you've been promoted to a new opportunity to preach the gospel where you are. Or maybe for some of you, you think, I'm not going anywhere. It's not about changes in my life. It's about my kids. They're not doing well right now. They're not walking with the Lord. Their faith is being challenged. It's fragile, or maybe it's been outright renounced. You'd do anything for them to have a vibrant walk with God. You'd buy the gift if you could. I think sometimes we need to hear this too and go, this may be a season where God is planting them deep where he's challenging what was easy so that they may develop a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ, even as these persecuted Christians leaving Jerusalem discovered as they moved into Samaria. The result is this. 
It is our job to be faithful messengers of the gospel at home, at work, or abroad. As the passage says in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It is God's work to do the miracle of drawing people to himself. So, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, just chronicling the history of the gospel's expansion and even the unexpected means by which you took it forward, using even persecution and martyrdom as a catalyst for its spread. Lord, I pray we would be like these faithful everyday disciples who, upon leaving the region, preached the word wherever they went. Even in a situation, even in an area where they kind of didn't like the people they were moving in among. May we be those who preach the gospel wherever we go, and we'll trust you to do the miraculous of bringing people to a saving knowledge of yourself. Thank you for the goodness of the gospel. May we believe it and live it out. In Christ's name, amen.